Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Journalism, the podcast where we talk about the latest works in journalism, media, and communication with the people who wrote them. I'm David Schwartz from the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication. In this episode, we hear from Eric Deggins, media critic for the Tampa Bay Times. He is the author of Race Bader, How the Media Wields Dangerous Words to Divide a Nation. It's a remarkably current look at media's exploitation of race, gender, and region for financial gain. Eric Deggins, media critic for the Tampa Bay Times, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, the book is Race Baiter, and it, the, the story behind the, the title of the book is, is fascinating, um, and we'll definitely get into that. Uh, but for our listeners who might not be familiar with you, just uh, give us some background. Where are you from, and, and how did you get to where you are now? Oh, okay. Well, uh, right now I serve as a TV and media critic for the Tampa Bay Times, which is the largest newspaper south of uh, Atlanta. And uh, in that capacity, of course, I write feature stories, news stories, and things like that about uh, television and and media. So I cover radio, internet, all all sorts of things. Uh, And I also do commentaries for TV on national public radio. And I write a bit for Indiana University's uh, National Sports Journalism Center uh, as well. Um, and, and freelance work uh, for other publications. And I basically um, came up through the ranks as a newspaper journalist. I uh, graduated from Indiana University uh, with a, a degree, double major in journalism and political science, and started working in Pittsburgh, first for the Pittsburgh Press and then for the Pittsburgh Post Gazette as a news reporter. Uh, but my goal was always to be an arts critic. So uh, I went to the Asbury Park Press in New Jersey and was their pop music critic for almost three years. And that was a great sort of fertile environment because uh, um, Bruce Springsteen lives there, Bon Jovi lives there, John Bon Jovi and the band Bon Jovi lived there, uh, Southside Johnny, Asbury Jukes, the Smithereens. There's just a ton of great rock bands that live right in that coverage area and, and read the paper uh, daily. So I got to know a lot of those guys and cover them. And then I came to um, St. Petersburg to be their pop music critic uh, because it was a bigger paper uh, and a paper with a, uh, a better reputation. It had already won Pulitzer's and, um, you know, came there as their pop music critic and did that for about 13 months and then moved over to television because I felt like I could write about more things. I could write everything sort of happens on television. So if you want to write about civil rights or if you want to write about race or if you want to write, write about gender politics or whatever, uh, there's some corner of television where that's going down, and you can talk about it in addition to being able to get paid to watch television, which, let's face it, is a pretty cool deal. So that's how, <laughs> that's how I ended up uh, at, uh, at St. Petersburg, and now it's called the Tampa Bay Times. And the book is, is called Race Bader, the subtitle, How the Media Wields Dangerous Words to Divide a Nation. And you mentioned there are more opportunities for TV there gender issues, race issue, culture, so many different things that you can write about in terms of TV. Uh, if I understand it right, the title of the book came from an incident on TV, or at least was somewhat inspired by it. Please explain how. Sure. Um, Bill O'Reilly, the star of Fox News Channel, 
uh, called me a race baiter on his show uh, in 2008, and I'm not exactly sure why he named me, quote, one of the biggest race baiters in the country, unquote, but uh, I had I had been, I, I'd written several articles before that, um, taking issue with how he talks about race on his show, and uh, he had just been through this um, uh, this incident where he had tried to talk about visiting uh, a well-known restaurant in Harlem called Sylvia's with uh, Al Sharpton. And he was absolutely amazed that uh, the people there were just like any other uh, restaurant and people weren't, you know, running around grabbing their crotches like they were in a bad rap video or something. And so it's <laughs> on his radio show when he, when he had one and he got pilloried by the press and I wrote something about it and a lot of people wrote about it. And, and then he did this uh, commentary on his show said, you know, black you know, white people can't talk to black people about race anymore because it's just too easy to be called racist. And, you know, there's too many people making false allegations about race, too many, people, too many race baiters out there. And he named uh, Jesse Jackson, and he named Media Matters, which is a liberal-oriented media watchdog group, uh, and he named me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, at, the, at the time then and now, uh, I served as chairman of the media monitoring committee for the National Association of Black Journalists. And uh, the National Association of Black Journalists is this group of, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of black journalists, obviously, who are members, but uh, a lot of white journalists as well. It's a uh, group that advocates for diversity in media. We believe that you can get more accurate coverage of people of color if newsrooms more accurately reflect uh, the demographics of the city, of the area where they're based. So we try um, to boost uh at all levels, but particularly for uh, African-American journalists. And this committee tries to take a look at stories that we see in the news mix that might be um, stereotypal, that filled with stereotypes or prejudice or just off-base and inaccurate in terms of black culture. And then we try to call people's attention to it and get, the, uh, you know, get them to change their approach. Um, we offer training. We offer uh, internships. We offer... Um, experienced members who can come in and work with news organizations if they want it. And uh, for some reason, I guess, that is heresy to Joe O'Reilly. So, uh, so he called me one of the biggest race baiters in the country, and the only thing he mentioned was that I uh, was chairman of this media monitoring committee. So uh, as you'll see, if you pick up the book, you'll see in the introduction, I managed to uh, uh, weasel my way into a press conference that he was holding uh, somewhere near my home. And, uh, and and I just asked him, you know, what he meant by calling me a race baiter. And uh, he said, you know, he needed to see the exact uh, verbiage of what he said, you know, back in 2008. But the thing is, he and I have sort of traded barbs uh, in the press uh, for many years. So he knows who I am. He knows my work. Uh, and he just did. He didn't want to engage. He didn't want to have a conversation. And, uh, you know, I. For years, I told friends just the story as a joke. You know, can you believe that Bill O'Reilly called, called me a race baiter? And um, and one of them said, uh, "Why don't you? Just, you should write a book about how when you try to talk about race, when you try uh, to um, confront stereotypes and prejudice in media, uh, a lot of times the people who are putting that stuff out there try to turn it around and call you a race baiter." And I was like, "You know, that's a real good idea." So. Uh, a year later, uh, I had a proposal finished, and then uh, five months after that, I had the book written. It was it's, it's incredible that some of the references. You know, the book came out what, October or so, I believe, and there are references in there to to March. You know, there's a it, it, 
I wrote it. I, I had my my first deadline was the third week in March, and because uh, the Trayvon Martin case was really blowing up, Trayvon Martin was uh, unarmed black teen who was killed uh, in a Florida subdivision. Sure. Uh, you know, the world had to descend on the subdivision to get um, the prosecutors to, to uh, file charges against the man who shot and killed him. Uh, that was happening in March, you know, the economy. So I had to rewrite uh, the first chapter. And then right after that, um, Rush Limbaugh went after Sandra Fuck. Uh, and so um, that caused such a controversy. He lost so many sponsors. And that was such a, an embodiment hate culture that uh, is entwined on radio that that made I had to rewrite the chapter on radio so my my uh, deadline got pushed back to the second week in April so that's that's when I turned to the book yeah yeah I, I'm still uh, as you tell you know sort of the story of the book I'm still chuckling at, at what you said about O'Reilly and his, and his trip you know in into New York to, you know to have was it I think was it the meal with Al Sharpton it's almost like he was waiting for you know Danny Aiello to be waiting there behind the door for him. You yeah, know, I, you know. I don't know. What was weird because, like I said in the book, if you listen to the whole the whole audio of it is, is on the internet, and if you listen to it, um, parts of it are very uh, sort of perceptive. Where he talks about how his grandmother was prejudiced because she didn't know any black people, and she and there was a lot of uh, stereotypes in media that she believed and. Um, and, and he felt like she had gotten to know um, some a few black people in her life. She wouldn't have been so prejudiced. But then he turns around and says this stuff about Sylvia's, and he says other things that are kind of insulting. And uh, what's interesting to me about uh, Bill is that uh, every time he feels like uh, a, a white person has been unjustly accused of racism, he feels like that, that harms the ability to talk about race. But he doesn't have anything to say when white people pass along prejudice uh, directed at black people. So, you know, when Glenn Beck goes on Fox News and calls uh, Barack Obama a racist, or, um, you know, when uh, another one of his compatriots, Eric Bolling, uh, talks about a black legislator and tells her to get the crack pipe out of her mouth. Right, right. These are things I recount in the book, but there's there's several instances where people on Fox News have said really sort of hurtful and prejudiced things about black people. He doesn't have a problem with that. And, and, you know, as far as I'm concerned, even if you accept his thesis that what Jesse Jackson does and what Media Matter does and what I do harm racial discourse, then you've got to also accept that those other people, Sean Hannity and uh, Glenn Beck and Michael Savage and Rush Limbaugh, all these people who say really hurtful, outrageous things about black people, that they also uh, hurt racial uh, dialogue. He never wants to talk about that that part of it because he understands that uh, he understands who his audience is, and, and that's really the point of the point of the book is that a, a lot of the stuff that we see in media, um, stereotyping, the prejudice, the gender inequality, um, stereotypes about. Um, um, homosexuals, about uh, any kind of disenfranchised group, and now many stereotypes about different, different subcultures of white people. It's all about making money. You know, it's all about sparking an audience or motivating an audience. And uh, in many ways, it's degraded our trust in journalism. It's degraded our trust in each other. Uh, and people say they they are aware of this stuff and they're not affected by it, but in fact, they really are. 
and, and, and the book is an attempt to sort of get people to think about this directly and remove it from sort of the fringes of their consciousness where they don't think about it so much. Get them to sort of focus on it front and center and, and really consider some of the messages that some of these people are presenting on their shows day after day. No, I think this is a really nice uh, segue in, in, into the book. In the first chapter, you talked about you know money ruling all and, and O'Reilly. It, it's it's selective attention, it's selective perception, it's a lot of selection going on. Uh, you talked about the first chapter is even called downgrading all journalism, and sure. and you make a point of looking not just at Fox but also at MSNBC, um, and I don't think they're as guilty. Um, but sort of ex- explain what you meant by downgrading all journalism and and uh, what the motives are of, of cable news. Sure. Well, I mean, even uh, in a universe where you are opinion, um, you want to believe that you are getting your opinions from an honest broker, someone who is willing to uh, consider the facts fairly and present a well-rounded argument. If they believe something, then they also allow that there may be another point of view out there or they at least present a little bit of the other side and say, here's why my idea is better. Um, If you ignore uh, a pertinent fact that you know destroys your argument just because you want to make your argument, you're no longer an honest broker. You're not being honest with your audience. And what's happened in cable news is that um, there are very few honest brokers anymore. And uh, I used, uh, for MSNBC as an example, I used uh, the, the way Al Sharpton is used on the network. Um, when he was first hired as an anchor, uh, I went on the record, I went on CNN, and I wrote uh, a column for my newspaper expressing concern that the most visible African-American face on MSNBC was not that of a journalist and wasn't even that, really, of a media person, that of a civil rights activist, someone who was still running a civil rights organization and was still very much involved in trying to get certain kind of legislation passed, certain kind of legislators elected, um, certain kind of things done in in government. And uh, what we found in the middle of the Trayvon Martin situation was that um, Al Sharpton wound up uh, serving as a mouthpiece for the family uh, of the slain teenager and wound up leading uh, rallies that were aimed at collecting money for the family so that they could press a legal fight. Uh, uh, to get George Zimmerman prosecuted for shooting their son. So uh, there was this astounding day that I described in the book where on March 22nd of 2012, um, Al Sharpton led a huge rally in Sanford, Florida, uh, collected tons of money for the family, and then called them off everything at 6 o'clock, took the family before MSNBC's cameras and did a whole hour of show politics nation from Sanford. And then once the show was over, we're right back collecting money and uh, um, and rep- and representing his family, and you know, what was interesting to me was that 18 months before that, uh, Pete Olbermann and Joe Scarborough, uh, both MSNBC anchors, got suspended for uh, giving money to Democratic candidates without getting an okay from NBC News. Uh, 18 months later, Al Sharpton can collect money for a family at the heart of the biggest news story on the planet at the time, and there's no problem. You know? You're right. And I think viewers see that, and they sort of go, "Okay, their thumb is on the scale," and 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 they're not honest brokers anymore. You know, um, they have a dog in this fight. They have a serious dog in this fight. Um, and 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 that's when it gets to the point where people don't trust uh, what they see. 
Um, we just had a, a study, we just had a poll come out um, yesterday by the public policy, um, what is it, public policy polling is the name of the organization. And they found um, that Fox News was the most and least trusted uh, news organization on television uh, at the same time. <laughs> you know, they uh, 41% of them trusted Fox News the most. That was the highest percentage of trust. And then uh, 47% or 49%, something like that, uh, distrusted them. And what was interesting was that uh, Fox News's trust and distrust levels uh, sort of, the, the trust level down uh, by six points, seven points, and the distrust level went up uh, by more than 10 points uh, from the last time they did the uh, survey last year. So um, this partisanship in cable news is really degrading people's confidence and trust in all journalism outlets. Uh, people see how, how easy it is for Sean Hannity or um, an Ed Schultz or an Al Sharpton or uh, a Bill O'Reilly to uh, twist the facts of the situation to serve their argument. And, uh, and then I think people sort of lose faith in journalists in general. And, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we saw Bill O'Reilly just uh, yesterday go on his show and complain that NBC had not covered uh, the, uh, the uh, drone scandal, this uh, memo uh, that was um, uh, unearthed by a news organization uh, outlining the president's legal justification for using drone strikes to kill suspected terrorists, even American citizens, without uh, due process. And, uh, you know, Bill O'Reilly went on and on on his show about how NBC was not covering this. And NBC broke the story. <laughs> uh, an investigative reporter for NBC News was the person who found the memo and did the story that, that broke the news. And uh, NBC News and MSNBC were talking about that story um, all day. Uh, the day that he broke it, I think it was Monday, Monday or Tuesday. So... Um, so when you have something that simple, you know, uh, like a cable news host who doesn't, won't even acknowledge that a rival news outlet broke a news story that he's saying they didn't cover because, you know, sending the message that NBC is soft on news that, um, you know, makes the president look bad, that that's more important than getting the facts right. You know, that's what affects people's credibility. And so, um, you know, the first chapter of the book just talks about how even though uh, MSNBC seems to be a little more fact-based, uh, to me, MSNBC is just a little uh, further, a little less further down the road than Fox News is. MSNBC is going down the same path. Uh, they're just not as far along. Uh, they do have hosts that twist the truth in the same way some of the Fox News people do. Um, and, uh, you know, they have their own ethical lapses that they've had to apologize for. And, that, and that's one of the big differences is that they will uh, apologize uh, quicker than Fox News will, but they still make some of the same mistakes, serving their ideology first rather than trying to be honest brokers uh, of information. You know, the poll that you brought up, I, I saw the numbers as well a couple of days ago, and I thought it was interesting. And um, you know, when I, when I was reading the book, I was wondering, one question that I had is, is whether people notice um, you know, if they were aware of, of Al Sharpton's conflict of interest and whatnot. But I think that poll shows maybe they are aware because the personalities on Fox and the personalities on MSNBC 
from 2008 to 2012 or the current. Some are the same, most of, most of the same. There's been a little bit of turnover, I guess, especially at MSNBC. But the content is the same and the vitriol is the same. So I guess the fact that we see those numbers changing, the fact that people are starting to, to doubt what they see and, and to challenge what they see, maybe that is a little bit of hope that there is a bit of a discriminant consumer out there and it's not just people willing to digest whatever is fed them. I think what's happening with Fox News is, um, you know, the conservative media can create this sort of of opinions, uh, but every so often reality intrudes with a vengeance. Um, you know, one of the one of the first times we saw this happen was with Hurricane Katrina. Um, you know, there was no uh, spinning away the uh, government's inability to deal with that crisis. Um, there was no way to avoid the fact that these Republicans who said that the government couldn't do anything uh, kind of made sure that happened. <laughs> and, that, and that there are some things that government really does need to do for people, uh, specifically help out when a disaster strikes. Um, and then um, the, the, the economic crash was another bit of reality and intruding. And I think uh, the elections in 2012, um, this, this was an election that came after four years of intense effort by the party to defeat uh, the, uh, President Obama. And uh, conservative media pulled out all the stops and had their audience convinced that Mitt Romney was going to win. And so when that didn't happen, uh, you saw a lot of people scrambling to try to explain it. And, uh, and for example, you know, Dick Morris, um, an analyst for Fox News, uh, lost his job there. Um, you know, Carl Rove was taking a lot of criticism from people uh, because he spent $300 million and conservatives lost seats in the House, they lost seats in the Senate, and they didn't recapture the White House like they said they were going to do. Um, so every so often, reality intrudes into that cocoon, and people realize that they're being sold a bill of goods in a way. So I, so I think Fox News' um, dip in, in trust is, is, is due to that part. They just passed an election where they, they, got, they got a shellacking. But if reality doesn't be true for a while, I think that cocoon starts to uh, reshape and people start to drink the Kool-Aid again. And it'll take another uh, sort of horrendous intrusion of reality to kind of break that spell again for some people. Sure. And this, is, and this topic is fascinating. And the whole book is, and I want to make sure that we have time to get through as much as we can. And I want to jump ahead a little bit. You have this great phrase uh, that of race relations as collateral damage. And it's it's one of those uh, turns a phrase that sort of kicks you right in the gut, that it takes a recklessness with something so important. You know, there's, there's this myth of the post-racial America and whatnot. Um, please take, just take a few minutes to elaborate on what you meant by uh, race relations uh, in terms of collateral damage and uh, this racial carnage that's leave, being left behind, you know, trying to, try to make a buck and gain viewers. Sure. Well, um, again, um, what these cable channels in particular Doing, but um, most of the media outlets I'm talking about, uh, they're, they're doing a couple of things. The first thing they're doing is they're reflecting the sensibilities and the fears of their audience right back at them, right? So in Fox News's case, um, they're reflecting back the idea, you know, there's studies and, and surveys that show that the Fox News audience is, is overwhelmingly more likely to feel 
uh, that white people are just as likely to be dis- discriminated against in America as uh, people of color. You know, uh, a Brooks Institute study found 70% of Fox News viewers feel that way as, uh, compared to 46% of sort of the average population. So, um, so, so your Fox News viewer is someone who feels that um, efforts to equalize things for people of color uh, are, are, uh, are really uh, a disadvantage against white people because the playing field is already level. Uh, and, 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 and people and liberals just won't admit it, right? So, uh, so, so Fox News kind of reflects that idea. Back then, I have a host who are very skeptical about things like affirmative action. They're very skeptical about claims of discrimination lodged by people of color unless it's incredibly blatant. Uh, and and they're, they're skeptical of uh, attempts to uh, create government programs that equalize things for people of color because they don't feel there's any equalizing to do. They feel like if you work hard uh, and put your nose to the grindstone, anybody can be successful in America, uh, which is a nice thought. Uh, you know, look at income levels, you look at um, uh, arrest uh, records, you look at illness and sickness and health care and, you know, every any indice you want to look at, you'll see that people of color, black people, do far worse. Uh, they earn less money. Um, they have uh, they have more serious illnesses. Um, they're they're more likely to be arrested. They're more likely to be arrested for serious crimes. They're more likely to be put to death. You know, it's just you know, it's it's it's, it's crazy. Uh, so obviously, that's they're not equal. But that's not the world that Fox News reflects back to its viewers. And then the other thing these these outlets do is they reflect the fears of their audience back. So um, what's the ultimate fear of a conservative who feels like the playing field is level and there's a, a black man in the white house who is sort of inimical to their, um, to their perspective. Uh, well, the, the worst case scenario is you have uh, a black president with a secret agenda to use the government to give free things to uh, people of color who don't deserve it. Uh, and so that's the thing that constantly comes up. When you watch, particularly um, the commentators on Fox News, there's this vigilance. There's something wrong about Obama. There's something weird about him. He has a secret agenda. He has these secret advisors. You know, he's pushing these secret plans. You know, it's always, you know, there's always some secret uh, conspiracy. But that that's a fear of the Fox News audience that they're constantly kind of reflecting back at them in order to make the channel feel comfortable to them. Uh, and then the, the final thing is that. Um, Racial conflict uh, can can draw attention. Um, when I was talking to a professor who studied some of the online uh, conservatives like uh, Breitbart.com and the Daily Caller and uh, the Drudge Report, um, this professor feels that they use racial conflict in the same way that the yellow journalists use tabloid-style news stories to draw an audience at the turn of the century. So um, you can draw a crowd by uh, creating a racial conflict. Uh, but unfortunately, the, uh, the, the ultimate result of all of this reflection of fear, reflection of sensibilities, and using racial conflict as an attractor, it winds up uh, creating a schism. Uh, so Fox News viewers are overwhelmingly white. Uh, and then MSNBC, which has um, you know, a much more diverse anchor lineup, it's much uh, liberal in its policies, so it embraces programs that might benefit people of color. It, it comes from the idea that 
there is uh, institutional prejudice, there is institutional racism, there, there are these problems that need to be corrected. Uh, so, of course, they have more leadership amongst people of color, they have much more leadership amongst black people. And uh, so already you sort of have the segregation on the dial where more people of color are watching MSNBC, uh, Fox News is overwhelmingly white, and they're espousing two different visions of people that are kind of in conflict with each other. Um, now that's news. Um, I also talk about how this happened in scripted TV programming, where um, on Thursday night, remember NBC had this great lineup called Must See TV, and you know Friends was on, and Seinfeld was on, and Frasier was on, and uh, you know all of these Mad About You, all these super popular sitcoms from the nineties. I remember, right, right. I remember they responded with Aisha Tyler coming on Friends, and and, and to this. <laughs> To this day, she jokes on her own podcast about how she broke the color barrier at NBC Must See Thursdays. Well, Union, after after Aisha Tyler, they tried twice uh, to make that show, and it failed. Uh, so uh, so those shows were, were very sort of monochromatic. So when Fox came along, Fox Entertainment, the Fox Network, uh, the Fox Broadcast Network, they wanted to compete. They wanted to start a fourth network. Well, how could they compete on Thursdays? Well, they had to build shows around people of color. Uh, because uh, that was the audience that wasn't being served by Seinfeld and Friends and that about you. So they created, uh, well, Living Single uh, was before Friends, but they created Living Single with Queen Latifah. They created Martin, Martin Lawrence. They created um, In Living Color, uh, which had uh, Keenan Ivory Wayans and Jamie Foxx. And, uh, David, Al- David Allen Greer, sure. Yeah, and New York Undercover, a show uh, about two police detectives, one black and one Hispanic. Uh, you know, all of their uh, comedies and dramas were uh, very uh, diverse and focused on uh, really talented and up-and-coming uh, performers of color. And uh, and so once that got going, then you had a situation where uh, white people were watching NBC and people of color watching Fox on Thursday night. So I, I distinctly remember this. I, I was working in New Jersey and I would go into work on Friday and uh, white folks would be talking about what happened on Friends or Frasier or Seinfeld and um, black folks would be talking about what happened on Martin or Living Single or New York Undercover. And uh, black folks had no idea who Jerry Seinfeld was and white folks had no idea who Jamie Foxx was or who uh, Mark Lawrence was. And so you had this segregation amongst the audience, segregation amongst what people were tuned into, uh, that was this byproduct, this collateral damage of uh, an economic attack. You know, Fox was trying to figure out how to make money on Thursday nights, so they programmed to an audience that wasn't being served. Uh, And nobody was really trying to create uh, a segregated TV dial, but that's what they ended up with just by pursuing their own economic agendas. And, and so that's what I think what happens sometimes. You have these different media outlets that have these other reasons for why they're focused on what they're focused on. But the collateral damage is that um, you have these audiences that don't uh, learn how to connect with each other and that don't share the same um, media experiences and really are encouraged to see the other side, uh, like demonize the other side and see them as, as less than. Uh, and, and, and that doesn't uh, really help anybody. And, and, and I think, um, you know, I wonder, I've never been able to have this kind of discussion with a Bill O'Reilly or a Sean Hannity or a Glenn Beck, but I, I wonder if they really even think that 
that what they're doing causes that kind of damage is they just kind of shrug it off and think, oh, you know, it's, it's not as bad as the liberals say it is. But, um, but I think it's obvious. You know, when you look at the trust ratings, um, you know, that same poll that we just talked about, um, Fox News, um, 29% of African-American respondents trusted Fox News compared to 57% of African-Americans who trusted MSNBC. Uh, and NBC News was also one of the most trusted uh, broadcast networks for African-Americans uh, because African-Americans don't watch those channels and feel like their sensibilities are being reflected in a way that Fox News does not. It really would be fascinating just to see if you ever could have a dialogue with an O'Reilly or a Beck or, or someone just to see. You know, first, you wonder if they're capable of having a real conversation You know, that's, that's recorded. Um, but... Really would be the only problem. You would never have that conversation in, in a way that I could transmit to the world. Like he, like that would hurt his brand too much. Just have an honest conversation about race. Um, I think if trans, um, maybe in a few years he might get to uh, to sort of drop some of the nonsense that he does and actually just have a conversation. But uh, right now. It would, it would hurt his brand too much. He would never do that publicly. And, and, and people like Sean Hannity and Glenn Beck, I think they're true believers. You know, I, I think they believe a lot of the crap they're, they're slinging. So you can't have an honest conversation with them because they are just invested point of view uh, that it'd be like arguing with a brick wall. Right. You know, one thing I, I liked about this book, and you brought up a little before, is like you went beyond politics and you were looking at, at media as well. Um, looking at gender and looking at primetime television and whatnot. And, and there's this really great narrative in there about Michael Patrick King, one of the minds behind uh, Sex and the City, and then now the driving force behind Two Broke Girls, the Monday Night CBS comedy, in which uh, I think of the term as the upfronts, if I have that right. And this, the, the early screenings, there was one racial stereotype after the other coming up in, in the early episodes of the show. And the critics saw it. And the networks even seem to somewhat acknowledge it. But in question after question after question thrown at King, he was he would just parry it or throw it back. You know, you mentioned the he was even making sexual jokes about an Irish reporter or something along those lines. So it was I was encouraged there in, in that the media critics were really going after him. That were really seeing a lot of the things that you would maybe write about in the book. They were seemed to be cognizant of these visuals that he was creating. And yet, despite that, he was just unrelenting. Um, maybe just elaborate on that a little bit more and, and more about primetime television and, and, and uh, sort of going beyond news now and uh, what happens when those sorts of images are then reflected back on the viewing public. Sure. Uh, well, the incident you're talking about, wasn't, it wasn't at the upfronts. Um, the upfronts are, are where uh, the networks reveal their new shows, uh, for advertisers months months before they actually... Right, I'm sorry. Wrong terminology. I apologize. ...describing was uh, a press conference uh, that was part of the TV Critics press tour, uh, which there, there's, um, there's a time in January and a time in July where uh, TV critics from all over the country go to L.A., and all the big TV programmers kind of roll out what they're going to have coming over the next six months. They hold press conferences for all their different shows, and... Uh, TV critics get a chance to sort of ask questions of the producers and the stars. They're up on a stage uh, and mic'd, 
and, uh, and, and there's about 200 of us in a room, and we get to sort of pepper them with questions. Uh, Michael Patrick King, who's no stranger to this process, uh, was seemingly not prepared for the fact that uh, a bunch of critics thought that the way that he depicted was probably on two of our girls, particularly uh, this Asian character, um, that, that it was borderline racist. And, and so when the questions started to come, um, you know, Michael did what he's done when he took those kind of questions about Sex and the City, which was he just basically said there's no problem. And, and part of his defense was that, well, hey, I'm gay, so I should be sensitive to these things, and I should be able to write this stuff. And, you know, a critic asked him, you know, so are you saying that because you're gay you get to crack racist jokes? And he was like, no, oh, you know, it's, uh, it just <laughs> all this whole um, um, ugly thing where, you know, the thing about those press conferences and uh, any critic who's attended them can tell you this. If a producer gets up there and says, oh, the sky is green, everybody knows the sky is blue we are going to keep asking questions until you admit the sky is blue or the press conference is over we're, we're not <laughs> let you insist that something is, is so when it's not or is not when it is so and and the best way to use stuff like that is to figure out a way to either admit um, that there's a problem or kind of acknowledge that you know, the criticism is valid, but you're doing something else. Or, you know, there's, there's ways to parry those kind of questions without just simply denying everything. And because uh, Michael just denied that the character was racist in any way, uh, that enraged some critics to the point where they just kept acting. And, and what should have been, I mean, the, the show debuted to really high um, ratings. Uh, it's, it's been uh, a highlight of their Monday night um, stable, stable in terms of ratings. So what should have been, they had just been nominated for People's Choice, People's Choice Award, uh, and, and I think that night, the night of that press conference, they were going to win it in their category. And, and so what should have been a victory lap became this really ugly thing because the producer would not listen to what critics were saying about the show. Uh, and that's often what happens in Hollywood. Um, again, number one, these superstar producers have a lot of control. So when they decide to tell a story the way they want to tell a story, um, the last thing a network wants to do is get in the middle of that, even if they're telling a story that's racially insensitive or has prejudice inside of it or has stereotypes inside of it. If it's not so bad that it ruins the viewership for the show, then the network is not going to say anything. So uh, Two and a Half Men can go on and on and on presenting this incredibly sexist um, sitcom with a sitcom who is living a life that's incredibly dangerous to the point where he's physically threatening his wives and ex-wives and uh, seems in danger of uh, overdosing at any minute. And they would just tolerate it and tolerate it until uh, literally um, he, did, he did everything but actually overdose in the middle uh, of Hollywood Boulevard before they, they fired Charlie Sheen off that show. So that shows you um, how far a creative person has to step over the line before the networks will step in and do anything. So um, network TV um, tends to have uh, a lot of stereotyping uh, built up in some of the characters. Uh, they have what I call in the book the, the black best friend. Like they're, they're afraid that shows that have too many people of color in them might turn off white viewers. 
And uh, because uh, competition for audience is so intense now in network television, uh, they won't risk that. Uh, but they will. Uh, but they also don't want to be criticized for having a totally, uh, uh, totally white cast either. So, um, so there will usually be one or two people of color in a cast, uh, particularly dramas, because uh, you know dramas are easy. They're usually ensembles. They're easy uh, to have a few characters that are people of color, but. Um, they would usually have one or two people of color in the main cast of the show, and they're usually what I call the black best friend. Uh, they're supportive characters. They don't often get storylines of their own. There's usually not many other people of color um, in the show. We don't get to see much of their family or who they're married to or their kids or anything like that. And uh, and, and their role is mostly to live the plot and to uh, help out the main character. If you see a, a TV show like Grimm, um, which is about this um, cop who can see supernatural things. Uh, well, his partner is an African-American, and he's the classic uh, black best friend. If he's not doing something that sort of moves the plot uh, in, a, in, a, in an obvious way, then he is supporting the main character. He's counseling him. He's helping him figure out some stuff in his life. It's not like he has any mind. <laughs> you know, his job is mostly uh, the white main character. He's a device. He's a he's a device often, and um, and 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 so uh, you know I, I have a, a part in the book where I talked to this actress who's also a writer and she was working on a pilot for Fox. She said the network had Friday and all the top uh, producers from their shows, and they had this long presentation on the change in demographics of uh, the audience for network television. And then at the end of it, sort of the message is, you know, your, your cast need to be more diverse. And so because she was an actress, too, she was also seeing uh, a lot of the scripts that were being turned out by these other producers uh, in case she might want to try out for them. And, you know, magically, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth characters down the line were getting changed from white characters to ethnic characters. And so it wasn't as if that character was devised, was from the as a color with a backstory and you know relatives and you know some kind of connection to the world um, they just said hey let's make Tony you know Leroy and suddenly you know he's played by a black actor he's saying all the same things that was in the script when the character was white but he's played by a black man now and so it looks more diverse but um, it, it's a very superficial kind of diversity and um, it doesn't really characters that kind of live and thrive on their own. And I think it also perpetuates a system where characters of color are constantly seen as support characters. It, it, it gets harder for viewers to see characters of color as the main characters in a story if most uh, of the network TV shows that depict them depict them as supporting roles. So, um, you know, again, it, you know, these are decisions that are kind of being made for economic reasons. You know, people, uh, network executives, don't want to create a show that will turn off viewers. Uh, so, um, so they're very careful uh, about how many people of color are in the show. And you know, if you have a show like Undercovers that was on NBC, a spy show, a few years ago, where the two leads were black, now the show failed. And I think a lot of critics who follow the show know that it failed because it wasn't a great show. They um, they didn't write a particularly exciting series. It was a spy 
series in the era of the Bourne Identity and the revitalization of the James Bond movies, and it was done on television. And so you can't, you know, you can't travel to exotic locations, really. You can't spend a lot of the kind of money that you can spend on a James Bond movie making every episode of a network TV show. So it just, you know, it didn't, it didn't quite work. But, you know, to the industry, it was, it was a rare drama action show with two black leads. And it failed. Well, you know, how long is it going to be before that gets tried again? Now, I've seen another show with uh, two black main characters called Deception. Uh, that um, is sort of like a nighttime soap, and it's not doing very well in the ratings either. And and I and so I have you know I'm feeling that that's going to end up being another cautionary tale. You know, NBC tried it twice and it didn't work. Now um, again, Deception is having a lot of problems. It doesn't have anything to do with the race of the leads, but um, you know, network uh, network TV and the industry kind of learns the lessons it wants to learn. And uh, and so somebody like um, the star of Hawaii Five-0, Alex O'Loughlin, uh, CBS's reboot, Hawaii Five-0. That guy was in two other series that tanked horribly uh, before he got a shot um, at doing Hawaii Five-0. Um, but sometimes actors of color don't get that same chance because the industry just decides, well, you know, NBC took a chance and it kind of tanked. You know, we're not going there. So uh, politics of diversity and network television are very complex in that way. You know, we've talked about you know race baiting uh, cable stations that that draw huge ratings. We've talked about uh, sitcoms that have all these stereotypes that they get big ratings. Um, it's kind of bringing me down. And and I want to look at uh, this, your chapter on hate radio. And uh, not that Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity give or Dr. Laura give me cause for hope in any way whatsoever. But you you, you title the chapter. Um, why talk radio may not be a haven for angry white guys much longer. Um, and then you cite some examples in terms of how they might be spelling their own doom, and there might be some signs out there that, that perhaps there can be some more balanced and fair and progressive voices coming back to radio. And just talk about that chapter, if you would. Sure. Um, well, the, the, a lot of that chapter of the history of how um, talk radio, particularly, oriented talk radio became this haven uh, for very conservative, very angry um, white males. And so I talk about um, some of the early pioneers of the forum, like Joe Tyne, uh, who was on uh, radio in the uh, 50s, uh, and um, Bob Grant, who took over for Joe and then moved to New York City um, to work for this uh, legendary radio station called WABC. And, um, you know, Sean Hannity and Glenn Beck are both sort of acolytes of Bob Grant. And um, just sort of talking about, again, how the economic forces came together to create um, this brand of radio that was pioneered and championed by the largest um, radio owner, uh, radio station owner in the country, Clear Channel. And because Clear Channel had a corporate strategy, um, that was centered on uh, making this kind of talk radio sort of dominant in the industry, you um, wound up becoming uh, a dominant force just, just by riding on the back of Clear Channel's dominance of the radio industry. Uh, but what's happened is that um, some of these hosts, Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck in particular, they started out as more entertaining guys. They started out as more light-hearted guys. Um, poking fun at their political enemies instead of um, demonizing them. 
And now they've gotten to the point where they're, they're so intense, they're so partisan, uh, so uh, bitter, and um, in Glenn Beck's case, paranoid, uh, that I think they've even turned off a lot of the fans. And uh, they they used to listen to the show to be entertained, and now these guys are so um, insulting and so intense. Uh, you know, and, and I'm not just saying this as an observer. I've talked to program directors and talk radio stations who say, you know, we can see that ratings for some of these hosts going down because people, um, in the end, they want to be entertained and they want to laugh a little. And these guys are so tense that um, it's just not fun for people to listen to them anymore. And so, again, the worm has kind of turned and we've reached a point uh, in talk radio where people are looking for something different. And, uh, you know, right now, um, the, the big corporations that control radio are uh, looking at sports talk as an alternative. Um, it's a place where people can argue about things, but the, but the arguments are harmless for the most part. Um, and it may be controversial to talk about the Ravens versus the 49ers, but when it does clears, everybody knows it's just a football game, right? Um, which is a little different than arguing over drone strikes or arguing over welfare policy or healthcare policy. So, um, so I think some of the biggest uh, com- companies in radio are now trying to find alternatives to this political talk. Because it attracts political talk, attracts an audience that's older, um, that's dying out, and that frankly is getting less and less interested in these topics and more and more interested in being entertained. You, you, you threw out the word entertainment uh, just a, a moment ago, and, and it, it threw me to the section on the book about reality TV. And, and I don't mean to make this about me for a second, but the part about Flavor Flav and Flavor of Love and um, I grew up in the 80s, and uh, I'm a white male, so I could not identify a lot with Public Enemy. But nevertheless, I loved Public Enemy for the rebellion and the voice. And there was never, there was nobody like that. And then came Flavor of Love. And <laughs> and all this work that, that Chuck D and Flavor Flav and, and Terminator X had put forth, um, it, it seemed just to be just thrown away. And there was a whole generation of people who didn't know what they had done. And you've got this quote, and I hope I get his name right, Jeff Old or Jeff Oldie, a a VP at VH1, in which he says, we didn't set out to make a show about race. We're just putting out a show for entertainment value. Um, But this is some entertainment that could have some real damage, don't you think? Oh, yeah. And and again, you know, you you bring up the term collateral damage. That's what the book is about. That's what I'm talking about. You know, these guys um, clearly setting out to I mean, some of them, obviously, because it's money-making formula, as I've talked about before, but some of these guys are just trying to create a show that attracts people and that grabs people and that makes an impact. And um, they're willing to minimize or shrug off or not focus on the collateral damage that occurs when you take somebody like Flavor Flav and you build a whole reality TV franchise around you know, his dysfunctional um, you know, lifestyle. And, um, and and you take that lifestyle and you sort of turn it into the framework of the show that forces everybody else who's on the show to live that lifestyle as well. Uh, so, um, you know, people think it's all in good fun, but on the, on the other hand, you're also um, encouraging these stereotypes, furthering these stereotypes, and, you know, frankly, glorifying a guy um, who really doesn't deserve it. So... 
you know, it's it, it's unfortunate, but it, I thought that quote really summed up again this idea that these guys are just trying to make money. They're just trying to make an impact. They're trying to make a show uh, that they think a lot of people will watch, and they're so focused on that that when you come to them and you say, "Look, you know, this is a show that is filled with stereotypes about black men and women," and it's the kind of thing where if it was a scripted show, there'd be fifty, um, you know, um, advocacy groups lined up to boycott you. Um, you know, why are you putting this on the air? You know, they don't want to hear that. They just, they just see dollar signs. And so it's up to that. That's one reason why I wrote the book. I want to try and educate the viewers so that shows like that don't do well um, from the beginning. And and so you don't have to persuade a producer uh, to turn away from something that might be profitable, profitable, it's hurtful because it won't be profitable. And 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 the only way we can make it not profitable is to educate the audience enough that they. Um, they avoid those kind of sure, and we're we're just about done. Um, I have one final question I want to ask you. I'm going to hold off on that and throw one penultimate question at you. It, I want to flip it back on the audience a little bit. We've talked about the networks and we've talked about the personalities and the producers. Um, Fox draws big ratings. Uh, Two Broke Girls did ratings. Flavor Flav for a while. Flavor of Love did some really good ratings. What do you think it says about the audience that that these uh, shows that uh, prey on stereotypes of gender and culture and religion and race um, that, that they that they at times do very well? What do you think it says about the audience culture in this country? Well, you know, one of the things I say early on in the book, like I try to set a framework for how to talk about this stuff, and one of the things I always say is that stereotypes are. And people, because we know that racism is ugly, um, we we presume, and that um, the only people who would um, indulge them or fall prey to them are have the ideas about race. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, always ugly. Uh, sometimes they're stuck. They explain the world in ways that are very simple easy to understand and, and, and easy to predict and they're comforting because they're predictable you know if I can look um, at a Hispanic person from across the room and feel like I know everything that they're about before I even talk to them well there's a certain level of comfort in that because I don't need to get to know you I don't have to run the danger of you know talking to you or dealing with you at all I can look at you and I feel like I know where you're coming from and make my decisions based on that um, in a way, that's that's comforting. Um, so, as the world goes more uncertain, um, there's a dynamic where people are, even, are encouraged even more to rely on stereotypes to navigate that world. Um, so, it says that the audience is uh, particularly bigoted. I just think it says that um, the audience is. is, is not necessarily literate enough about how messages get put out there. I mean, ultimately, if I thought the audience uh, really believed these um, stereotypes and prejudices, it wouldn't do any good to write the book because they would just read the book and go, yeah, so what? <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is what I believe. Uh, but what the book tries to do is take these things that people don't think about that much directly and kind of put them on the table in front of them and say, have you really thought about this? Have you really thought about why this happens? Have you really thought about why that happens? Have you really thought 
about the impact of this or that. And, and, and the hope is that once you kind of put it on the table in front of people, they go, wow, yeah, you know, that is kind of not cool. And then they, they, they start to change what they consume the media, they start to change what messages they will allow to be presented to them. And they start to demand that some of these media figures find a different way to talk about these issues. That's the hope. So, um, so you know, what I try to do media literacy, uh, and I'm also some of these centers, some people really think about them. And, and, and so uh, what I think it says about the audience is that they just haven't thought about, about this stuff. And I think it also says that media creators of media uh, are very professional and very uh, slick, and they're uh, very motivated, you know. And just like I said, the stereotypes are easier. Um, you know, it's it's easier to create a show that's filled with a bunch of this crap rather than attract quality entertainment. Um, you know, true excellence is difficult. Uh, it's much easier to create something down market um, that preys on people's worst uh, notions and confirms their worst fears and enters with a bunch of controversy. You know, it's, it's much easier to do that. So, on the one hand, you know, I'm challenging the industry. On the other hand, I'm challenging the audience to challenge the industry. And hopefully, between those two, you know, at least eradicate some of this stuff. The, the, the last line of the book is, is wonderful. It, it's time to save media and maybe even a divided America from itself. In the last chapter, you kind of sum everything up and talk about a way to move forward and a way for for citizens to educate themselves and to create a dialogue. And um, what was your intent with the, with the last chapter? What were you trying to accomplish? What sort of felt like I spent all these chapters kind of outlining all of this awful stuff out there. And I wanted the last chapter to be, okay, here's how we solve this. Okay. Here's some answers. Okay. Here's how we talk across race. Um, here's how um, we build better alliances. Here's how we, um, connect through um, social media rather than disconnect, and, and here's what's possible if we um, if we sort of reject propaganda and media, if we reject the divisiveness and move towards something that's better. Um, I just wanted the last chapter to be a little more hopeful and have some answers because, you know, in a way, um, it's easy to talk about the wrong. Sometimes it's a little harder to give that other side of it, which is um, here's how you solve it. And, and ultimately, you know, I mean, I, I guess I have to be an idealist because ultimately the way you solve it is you have to change the audience. You know, we're in a, we're in a media system now where the audience is getting more and more power. Um, just because media outlets are so fractured now that... Um, you know, every outlet is desperate for attention. It's desperate for people to congregate. It's desperate for buzz. It's desperate for people to go on Twitter and say, hey, you know, check this out or hey, check that out. You know, um, you know, people, um, <laughs> you know, when I went to get this book deal, you know, um, publishers were really uh, focused on what's your social media, you know, um, do you have a Facebook page? How many people <laughs> have a Facebook page? Do you have Twitter? You know, how many people follow you? Twitter? Do you go on, you know, cable TV news shows? Do you go on, you know, uh, how often that? You know, that big a component is is getting uh, to getting a book deal as as anything else, uh, because everybody's desperate for buzz. So, 
Um, so the goal is to transform the audience uh, because the audience has the power. So if you convince the audience, that, you know, Honey Boo Boo, uh, watching Honey Boo Boo is like eating hard. <laughs> it really is. It's television equivalent of eating hard. So really, do you want to do that? You know, uh, and 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 if you convince enough people that that's true, then all of a sudden, Honey Boo is not a hit anymore. And 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 we have this hor- horrifically stereotypical depiction of Southern white people. And not only do we have it off here, we have a bunch of other producers who saw that audience go away and say, you know what? Um, they don't want that anymore, you know. And so maybe the next thing they create is is different. Right now we have this whole spate of shows um, that s- stereotype different subcultures of uh, white people, working class, working class white people, um, because uh, Honey Boo Boo is successful and Duck Dynasty is successful, um, and a few other shows like that are successful. Um, so if the audience stops watching those kind of shows, then they'll move on to a different kind of subject because the ultimate goal is to attract an audience and make money. Well, the author is Eric Deggins. The book is Race Bader, How the Media Wields Dangerous Words to Divide a Nation. Eric, what are you working on now? Uh, well, really what I'm doing now is trying to get the book out there. This, this book it is not something that you just kind of throw it out and, you know, 50 million people buy it. Uh, for some, I think, I think uh, for some people, it's a tough sell at first. But if they hear me talk about the book, um, if they if they give it a chance, if they read a little bit of it, they'll understand that it's it's not a polemic. Uh, I'm not out there, you know, um, yelling and screaming at people, you know. And uh, when I give presentations and people disagree with me, I'm happy to sit down with them and sort of talk through what it is that they disagree with me about. You know, maybe we'll agree to disagree. Maybe they'll convince me. Uh, maybe I'll convince them. But, you know, I'm not somebody who's just going to be uh, in your face, screaming at you, um, you know, intense ideologue. And I, and I think the book is slowly gaining traction because people are slowly starting to realize that it's not just uh, a hatchet job. It's not just uh, a polarizing, um, you know, sort of pedantic kind of thing. So... Um, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of appearances. I'm going to colleges. I'll be um, at Scranton, University of Scranton, at the end of the month. I'll be going to uh, Savannah, Georgia. I'll be going to Los Angeles. I'll be going to Indiana, um, Hartford, Connecticut. Um, uh, I, I had to uh, maybe uh, Las Vegas. So, you know, there's um, a lot of schools are hearing about it. A lot of community groups are hearing about it. People are asking me if I can come out and speak. So uh, I feel like the book is just starting at Roman. And, uh, and it's, it's been out for a couple of months already. So, uh, so right now my goal is to spend um, at, at least the first six months of the year just bringing the book to people, you know, going to schools, going to community groups, uh, going to book festivals, and making the case um, that this is an important message. And, uh, you know, Tra- the, the year anniversary of Trayvon Martin's death is February 26th. year, there's still going to be things happening that are talked about a lot um, in the book. Uh, so, I, so I don't even feel um, like uh, I'm talking about the past until we get to the end of this year. 
Uh, so, so you know, towards the end of the year, I'll probably start to think uh, about what I might, what I might write about next. But you know, I have a lot of other jobs too. <laughs> right. But with so uh, right now, the idea is to take this book to as many people as possible, and also keep up my work at the Tampa Bay Times and with NPR, especially. Well, Eric, this is a, a smart and important book. Thank you for writing it, and thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Anytime. You've been listening to New Books and Journalism, part of the New Books Network. You can find Race Bader, written by today's guest, Eric Deggins, at Amazon and other retailers. Thank you for listening.